You're listening to City Church. Hey, how many of you have seen the movie The Perfect Storm? So it came out probably 10 years ago. Yeah, a lot of you. Um, It's a really good movie. I feel like because it's about 10 years old, it gives me license to ruin the ending for you. So if you haven't seen it, it's on your bucket list. Head to the bathroom for a couple minutes. But um, if you remember, it's the story of uh, this town, Gloucester, Massachusetts, in October of 1991. And it follows the life of um, these fishermen. And so George Clooney's in it, Mark Wahlberg's in it, and it really chronicles um, the story of George Clooney. And he is this, he's this fisherman who's a little bit down on his luck, a little bit uh, hard up for cash. He's been fishing all season, having a pretty terrible year. And so it's beginning to get to the end of the season. And if you remember any of the story, you remember that it come October, it's beginning to get storm season. And so what you do is you begin to wrap things down because storms can come up really quick and it tends to be dangerous to head out anytime in that, um, that time of the year. And you're kind of, you're risking safety when you go out that late. But it's been a hard year. And so Clooney um, brings in four or five guys and he gets one last fishing expedition together, gets his, his little crew together and they head out. So they head out to their normal spot, and as usual, they're not finding anything. And so they start to push a little bit further, still don't find anything. And then they push out to this remote region called the Flemish Cap. You remember this? It's a hard, it's a scary place to be because the storms come up so quick, but the fishing is good. And they end up getting this mammoth catch. Excuse me. And um, they get this mammoth catch. And right that time... The ice machine breaks. Remember this? Ice machine breaks and, uh, excuse me, they've got all these fish with them and no way to keep them cold. And so the problem is if these fish spoil, they can't sell them. And so they have no way to make any money. And so they're forced with this decision of we either got to buzz back home really quick and get these fish off the boat. Or um, we're, we're going to let them spoil and we're going to lose everything. But the problem is between them and home is this massive storm. Hence the name, the perfect storm. It's the confluence of these two massive weather patterns and a hurricane. And they're all hitting at the same spot. So begin to, to press to home and these other boats are calling them and trying to tell them what's going on. And they're beginning to call in maydays for them. And if you remember, they get hit by these massive waves and the antenna breaks off. So now they have no more communication with anyone. One guy goes flying off the boat. And so they decide, all right, it's bad enough that I think it's time to head out to the sea. Forget the, uh, forget the fish on board. We'd rather live than make all this money. If you remember, they, they turn their boat around and they start heading back out to sea in this huge rogue wave hits them 70 80 maybe 90 feet tall and so the boat starts flying up this wave it's like full power and they're trying to get over it and they get right up to the top and the wave just crests and it it capsizes the boat and the entire crew is lost at sea kind of a sad story um with a storm that big that was just one of the stories that came out of um that mammoth storm another one of the stories that that kind of was alongside with that is this Coast Guard crew and uh, chronicles um, this guy named John Spillane. John Spillane was a para-jumper with the United States Coast Guard, and he flew out to try and save um, that ship. And so he's flying out there, and uh, they're having trouble because the weather's so bad, and and so they get to the place where they're running out of fuel. Um, This guy, John Spillane, and four others on his helicopter crew. And so they begin to turn back home because they're running low on fuel. And they're trying to, to link up with one of those refueling planes. 
And because the weather's so bad, it's impossible to make that connection. And so this crew realizes that there's no way for them to make it back to land. And so they decide, we got to ditch this plane. Like, it's the only chance of surviving. We're either going to run, you know, as long as we can and then fall, or we can, we can jump out now and take our chances. And so the pilot's yelling to these two para-jumpers. He's saying, you got to jump. And they're looking down, and they're seeing these huge waves. And they, they know that either they're going to hit the top of the wave, and it's going to be a 10-foot drop, or if the wave dips far enough, it's going to be 70 or 80-foot drop. And so one author writes about this story. Let me just read it to you. It's talking about this man, John Spillane, and, and his normal life, and then what happens. It says, when Spillane treats injured seamen offshore, one of the first things he evaluates is their degree of consciousness. The highest level, known as alert and oriented times four, describes almost everyone in an everyday situation. They know who they are, where they are, what time it is, and what's just happened. If someone suffers a blow to the head, the first thing they lose is recent events, alert and oriented times three. And the last thing they lose is their identity. A person who has lost all levels of consciousness right down to their identity is said to be alert and oriented times zero. When John Splane wakes up in the water, he is alert and oriented times zero. His understanding of the world is reduced to the fact that he exists, nothing more. Almost simultaneously, he understands that he is in excruciating pain for a long time. That is all he knows. So this para-jumper, in this moment, jumps out of the helicopter. <clears throat> and what happens is he falls 60 or 70 feet. And so he hits this water going about 50 miles an hour. And so as you can imagine, uh, he is completely knocked out. He doesn't know who he is, what time it is, where he is, or what's just happened. He said to be alert and oriented times zero. And began to think of this alert and oriented times zero idea. You take this particular story of John Spillane, he heads out on this rescue mission. He heads out on this, this trip to be a part of saving others. And instead of being the one who is saving others, he's the one who's drowning at sea. Completely lost, he doesn't know his identity, he doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know what time it is, he doesn't know what's happened recently. My, how things changed for this guy. And I began to think how, how this chronicles our life so often. We hear that we're a part of this grand story of God, but so often we forget who we are and where we are and what we're here to do. Because wave after wave of life just begins to smack us and hit us. And it begins to erode our confidence that God is with us. It begins to erode our confidence that God cares about us. We think we're supposed to be a part of this grand story that God has put in front of us, this mission of God. Instead, we're just trying to make it to five o'clock, it feels like. Instead of thriving, we become just surviving. We take on this survivalist mentality. But we've been told we matter to God. Guys like me have stood up on, on stages like this and told you, you matter to God. So what do we do with that? I mean, we're forced to wrestle with this, this thing of either God didn't come through or God doesn't really care or God is holding out on me or I'm blowing it or I'm not praying enough or it's some combination of the both. Why do we feel knocked out half the time? Why does it feel like no matter what we try and do, we can't get our minds to wrap themselves around the importance of eternal things? It's like no matter how hard we try, no matter how great our Sunday is, no matter how much we feel like God has spoken to us, our weeks so often don't reflect what we know in our hearts to be the most important thing. 
What do we do? How do we wrestle with that? How do we wrestle with the fact that these two things don't seem to connect? And the truth of the matter is you and I need to get our heads around the fact that we are in the middle of a spiritual battle. That we are quite literally at war. And I'm not trying to use this grand verbose language. I'm trying to tell you that the Bible describes a reality that if we don't get our heads around, we won't understand how and why things happen. We will never be able to understand why things seem so difficult. Why every time we try to move in a positive direction, it seems like we hit a wall. Paul and Jesus wrote about this reality. Jesus, in describing This spiritual battle in describing Satan says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The fact is you and I are at war. We are caught up in the middle of this war. Paul writes about it where he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so what's actually going on here? Who are we talking about? Well, one more chunk of scripture for you. John writes about this in Revelation. He describes what I'm talking about here. He describes how we got here. In Revelation 12, he says, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon is describing Satan. It says, And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So John describes for us what exactly happened. And if you know the story at all, you know that Satan wanted God's glory. And so he and a third of the angels rose up against God, We're kicked out of heaven, and now they're a part of our existence here on earth. I don't know if you've seen the movie Amadeus. It's the story of Wolfgang Mozart. If you know who Mozart is, he was this incredible composer. He wrote Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, the melody for that, around age three. By age 12, he was writing complete scores, complete orchestra uh, pieces. And so, as you can imagine, there was some real jealousy that surrounded his life. And so this movie chronicles the story of one of those men. His main name was Salieri. He was the court composer at the time. And this man just begins to be racked with jealousy and bitterness and anger that Mozart has all this innate talent and this man Salieri has hardly any. And so in this movie, Mozart's wife comes to Salieri and he that she doesn't know yet um, how he feels about her husband. And she wants him to hire him, to give him a job. And so she brings Mozart's uh, portfolio, and she begins to show some of these pieces to Salieri so that he would be impressed and, and give Mozart a job. And so he's reading through them, and he had no idea just how great Mozart was. And so he's reading through it, and, and he's blown away by how fantastic Mozart is. And that jealousy just begins to consume him. It just, it overtakes him. And you can almost see it just change in his face. And so the next scene, it shows him in his chambers. And he walks up to the wall where he's got a crucifix. And he takes it off the wall. And you see him, he just, he throws the crucifix in the fire. 
It begins this, this conversation with God that is just seething with hatred and envy. And he says to God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you chose for your instrument a boastful boy and gave me only the ability to recognize his greatness. You are unjust, unfair, unkind. I will block you. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. And this story really describes for us, it shows us a picture of the heart of our enemy. He is determined to harm and ruin the image bearers of God. I'm not being overly dramatic here. Satan is opposed to you in every way possible. He's looking to bind you up in sin and shackles of shame and regret. He's trying everything he can to oppose um, the very things that you know bring life. Your very uh, getting here to church this morning, he was opposed to that. The very things that bring you life, that bring you joy, that bring you peace, that bring you freedom, he is opposed to those things. He is opposed to you as an image bearer of God because he hates God. And I'm not trying to, to paint this picture just to kind of scare you or make you think, you know, that you're, you're in this thing. And, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here. I'm just trying to give you a picture of what the Bible describes your reality is. Because if we don't understand our reality, if we don't know why we're here and, and why sometimes things happen in such a way, we won't fully grasp how things work with the Lord. How do we, how do we uh, process when bad things happen? How do we process when we're disappointed, when we're let down, when, when prayers don't get answered? Our God, who is all-powerful, has allowed Satan to exist in this way for a little time. And so you and I are forced to wrestle with the reality that we have an enemy who is opposed to us. And if this was all I had for you this morning, man, I, I would walk out depressed myself, and I'm sure you would too. A.W. Tozer writes about this. He says, So it becomes the devil's business to keep the Christian's spirit imprisoned. He knows that the believing and justified Christian has been raised up out of the grave of his sin and trespasses. From that point on, Satan works that much harder to keep us bound and gagged actually imprisoned in our own grave clothes. He knows that if we continue in this kind of bondage, we are not much better off than when we were spiritually dead. He's describing this thing that Satan is longing to keep us bound up in regret, longing to keep it so that our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, but fixed on our problems. Longing to get us to take our eyes off the Father and put them on our difficulties and the problems and things that are not going our way. And, and begin to pull us off track, pull us off of our pursuit, the eternal things that matter, that we say we live for. And I am grateful this morning that, that what I've shared with you this morning, I share by way of an introduction, not a conclusion. That this is not the end of the story. That Jesus has come and made a way. See, what happens if you know the life of Jesus at all? See, Isaiah 61 is this messianic prophecy. And it's Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, writing several hundred years before Jesus comes. And he's writing about what the Messiah would do. Who the Messiah would be, what he would do. And just the first verse says this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is what the Messiah would be about. This 
is what Jesus would be about. And if you know the story of Jesus' life at all, you know that for his first 30 years or so, he, he lived in relative anonymity. Really not well known, probably. Uh, lived with his parents, probably learned his father's trade. And right around the age 30 or so, he walks and is baptized by John the Baptist. And straight out of there, he heads into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting where he communes with the Father. And then he begins his ministry. And what's really interesting is how Jesus begins his ministry. Luke 4 captures it for us. If you've got your Bible, you can head there. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. It'll be on the screen. But it says, And he came to Nazareth, talking about Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then it describes this incredible moment. It says, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what was Jesus' mission? What was Jesus identifying with? Well, good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, said liberty to those who are oppressed. Jesus says, I'm here on a rescue mission. I'm here to set free the captives of sin and shame and death and regret. And all the things that Satan's been working towards and all the things he is working towards now, Jesus says, I have come to set captives free from those things. And Jesus has come so that you can be set free of those things and I can be set free of those things. And so if we're honest about how the, descri- the Bible describes this, the question for us is not, are we opposed? The question for us is not, is there something or someone working at opposition for us, against us? But where and how? Because the truth is, any movement towards life or freedom towards God or to others will be opposed. Marriage and beauty and friendship. The thief, as Jesus described him, describes him, wants it all. And so what I want to do for you this morning is just, is just kind of bring you to my story a little bit, tell you how I've seen this in my life, hopefully just make you aware and begin to, to check your own life and your own heart and say, is there any of that going on? And so the first one I want to just bring your attention to is this idea of agreements. In John 8, 44, he describes Satan as the father of lies. And so what this idea of agreements looks like is that in the course of life, as you and I fall, we make mistakes, we, we screw up, we yell at our kids, or we, we're short with our spouse. In that moment, you can trust that the father of lies is whispering things to you, saying, you're a lousy husband. You're such a jerk. You're, you're a terrible parent. And what he's trying to do in that moment is to get you and I to agree with that and begin to wear that as part of our identity. And so rather than understanding where these feelings are coming from, we, we look at it and we say, man, I, I think I am a lousy parent. I'm, I'm a lousy husband. You make that mistake that you've been asking God for forgiveness for for countless times and, and the father of lies, just, he whispers in your ear, you'll never conquer this. And your shoulders, they begin to sloop a little bit and you begin to think to yourself, I will never conquer this. I was really unaware that this is one of the ways that Satan um, works so often. 
If you've traveled to um, remote parts of the, the earth, I've been to um, Rwanda and India specifically I'm thinking of, you see Satan work in some pretty overt ways. But what I forgot to think to myself is that in Western culture, Satan tends to work in more subtle ways. He lies to us. He tries to get us off course. And so what I began to see was that at all times and in every way, Satan's lying to me. Satan is trying to get me to believe things that are untrue. He's trying to believe, trying to get me to believe untruths about God. And this happens most in my moments of weakness, right? Maybe you're at work and, and uh, you kind of know that, that you've got to fudge the numbers a little bit to make your sales look good so that you get that promotion or you get that raise. In that moment, you're, you're wrestling with it because you know that God would have you be honest and instead you end up, you, you give into it, right? And then an hour later, you just feel this shame and this regret. And you just, you hear this, this subtle thing of like, you're a liar. You are a liar. You begin to wear that and begin to think, I, I'm kind of a liar. But here's the thing, we, we hear these, these subtle nuances all the time. And what we know about God is that he never is, is calling us out with, with, with shaming us or with pointing an angry finger at us. God is always working to bring us back. He's always calling us back to him. And so with this idea of agreements is that you and I need to be aware that this is how Satan works. He wants to attack our identity. He wants to attack our self-esteem. And he does it by whispering all the time things that are untrue about you and about me. Sometimes we wrestle with insecurity because we begin to believe things like, I'm not pretty. Oh, I'm not handsome enough. I'm not strong enough. Girls would never like me. I'm never going to find a mate. And all the while, Satan is just whispering these lies to us saying, you're not pretty enough. You're never going to find someone. And we begin to just say, I'm never going to find someone. And because we're not aware that Satan is lying to us, we just, we hear these things and we just kind of, we just kind of take them on. And we just assume that they're true. Rather than understanding what they are and saying, you know what, that, that is not true. I will choose not to believe that. Another place this often uh, takes place is in the subject of God's goodness. If you've lived on this earth for any length of time, you have experienced some measure of disappointment. You've probably had a relationship that went sour. You had a job that you didn't get that you really wanted. Perhaps you had a loved one who was sick and you were praying for that person. And after two years of praying for them, they died. Maybe you had a marriage that you've been working on and it crumbled and you go, man, how can this possibly be? And we're rest. We're, we're forced to wrestle in that moment with, what do I do with that? What do I do with this inconsistency between what I've been asking for and what actually happened? And we don't know the mysteries of God. We understand that sometimes things just happen. And I'm not saying that, that every bad thing that happens to you is a result of you know, a spiritual attack. Some things just happen as a result of living in a fallen world. But you can believe that Satan will look to jump on every single thing he can. And so in your moment of disappointment, you can believe that he's going to be taunting you, coming after you, saying, God's not, God's not reliable. You can't trust him. You know, I, 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 I wrestled with this about a year ago really, really hard. And uh, what happened with us is some of you know my wife is due on Wednesday with our first child, which we're really excited about. And, um, and so... She's pregnant, and this is not the first time she's been pregnant. 
and um, about a year or so ago, we had been praying for a couple years. We'd been really excited about starting a family. And if you know our story, I was an engineer when we got married, and she was a dental hygienist, and we both kind of changed courses, and um, she's now a physician assistant, and she was in grad school and, and, and uh, graduated in August. And so we had kind of put off starting a family, and, and I was getting impatient. And so she finally graduates, and, and, you know, we're trying to start a family, and she gets pregnant. And if, if you've ever gone through a miscarriage, you know that it's, it's the highest of highs because the dream is finally realized of starting a family. And then that dream comes crashing down when you get the news that uh, she had a miscarriage. And so that's what happened with us is she has a miscarriage. And I, I, I just, I don't know what to do with it, you know? It's like I've got all these, uh, these things in my head that I believe about God. I've got all these things that, that he is true and good. And yet in that moment, all I'm hearing is abandonment, right? All I'm hearing in my spirit is God has left you. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't, God's not concerned with your life. He's not concerned with the affairs of your heart. Abandonment felt true. Betrayal felt true. And it was about six weeks of um, wrestling with just, you know, hearing these things. Why trust God if you, you can't even, you can't even trust him to care? Why walk with him if you can't even trust him? It was like a six-week battle that until I began, you know, began sharing these things with people and, and reading up on it, I realized that, listen, I'm in the middle of a battle. And I don't understand all the mysteries of it, but to understand that I have an enemy who is warring for my joy, who is warring after my soul, it finally put some things in perspective. And so it was like I awoke and finally was like, man, I'm not believing this stuff. I refuse to believe it. I remember being in my car and, you know, I'm wrestling through still the emotions of this stuff and um, just saying out loud, I can remember this so clearly, God, I don't get it. I don't understand why you would let this happen. I don't get it. But I will choose to believe that you are good. I will choose to believe that you are true. God, you are sovereign and trustworthy, and you care about me as a father does. I began to break these agreements that had, had been trying to latch onto my soul. Agreements of God not caring. Agreements in my spirit that I didn't matter to him. I just began to say that out loud. I just said, God, I don't care what I feel. I don't care about uh, how things feel in this moment. I choose to believe that you are good and true and trustworthy and taking care of us. Because I'd, I'd felt these things just begin to put their tentacles in my heart a little bit. And I wonder if you know what that's like. I wonder if you know what that's like in the moments of biggest disappointment to begin to believe for a half second that God doesn't care. Because that half second turns into a minute. And that minute turns into an hour, and that hour turns into a month, and suddenly you're wrestling with, does God even care? And so if you and I are not aware that this is one of the ways that Satan likes to come after us, we will find ourselves agreeing with his lies, rather than stepping back, understanding that the things I'm hearing, the things I'm sensing are simply untrue, and choosing instead to speak truth into those lies. It's the only way to do it. It's the only way to do it. And so that's why I'm in my car and I'm just saying these things out loud that I partly feel, but I fully believe. And I'm just saying, God, I don't care what I feel right now. My heart will not agree with the lie that you are not good. I will choose to cling to the fact that you are good. You know, this, this shows itself in, in the area of offense as well. I was meeting with a guy this week um, who's one of the pastors up at Walnut Hill. He's 
been there for, you know, 15 years or so. And so I just basically said to him, hey, just download for me, you know, what these last 15 years have been like. What have you learned? And one of the things he said was, keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. I said, what, what exactly do you mean by that? And he said, relationally, keep short accounts. Understand that when you work closely with people, when you care deeply about someone, <clears throat> inevitably, you're going to get hit, right? You're going you're gonna to get offended. You're going to um, get hurt. And so if you don't learn to keep short accounts, you're giving Satan just, just fertile ground to work in. And the offended heart is one of the places that Satan can work most effectively. Because when your heart's offended, it's so given to agree with untruths. You get offended and Satan just longs to have you agree with, that person doesn't care about you. Or you get offended by a Christian and what Satan says is, that's what all Christians are like. Or someone in the church hurts you and Satan just says to you in in the back of your mind, you shouldn't go to church again. They're all hypocrites. They're all like that. And because we're not aware that he's, he's speaking to us in that way, we just kind of say, I don't know if I want to go to church. They're all like that. If that's what Christians are like, then I want no part of Christ. Because we're not aware of him speaking to us in this way. Maybe you don't believe me this morning. Maybe you kind of think, man, you're being overly dramatic. You're painting this picture like we're, we're in Lord of the Rings. But really, man, this is real life. Don't talk to me about spiritual battle. But here's what I'll just say. If Jesus said that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, then why would you and I assume that he's not actually trying to do that? Why would we live as though that's not a reality when Jesus tells us that it's true? And again, I understand that there's a mystery between the physical and the spiritual and why some things happen. Please don't, un- please don't hear me saying every bad thing that happens to you is a spiritual attack. But you've got to know that in those moments when it happens, Satan's going to try and jump on him. And so the first thing that I want to, I want to put before you as we um, try and work against this stuff is to just this, be watchful. It felt like the, the, the bulb went off in my mind when I began to understand that this is how Satan works. And so my, call it six weeks or whatever, of just being sort of depressed and not really sure how to wrestle with it, the moment I realized that I was in the middle of a fight, it kind of, kind of swelled me up and I said, it's time to fight back. It's time to fight back against the things that are untrue. Knowing that Satan has been speaking these lies to me is what caused me to begin to just call out the truths of Scripture. Knowing that he's been lying is what caused me to finally say, I will not listen to these things anymore. God, I will no longer call into question whether or not you care for me, whether or not you care for my wife. I won't do that. And so being watchful, being aware that at all times Satan is trying to get us to believe untruths. Secondly, I I think God would have us be intentional. Be intentional to push back on things. In Ephesians 4.27, Paul writes, Neither give place to the devil. And in Ephesians 6, he describes this armor that Christians are to, quote-unquote, wear in combat against spiritual forces. And so he tells us those things because he wants us to be aware and intentional to push back in this battle that you and I are a part of. And so beginning to understand that, beginning to read Ephesians 6 and say, okay, what does that actually mean on a practical level? Is what Paul would have us do. Because this reality that that Paul and Jesus and John are, are writing for us is that this exists. And so not to be naive that this thing is true. Because here's the truth. 
You have the power and the authority to take the word of God, to take the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and run Satan out of your affairs. But you have to do it. You have to do it. Jesus has given you the ability to do that, but you have to. James 4 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee. But you have to resist. You have to push back. You have to be intentional. Otherwise, you just stand there and you keep getting wave after wave of attack. And you find yourself getting beat down because you're not pushing back. Maybe for you, it's time to push back. We invite the band back up. The thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. And those things are true. But my last point for you is this. It is be fearless. Be watchful, be intentional, and be fearless. Jesus tells us this. He says, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Believe that. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. The response to knowing that there is a war going on in which Satan is trying to take you out is not to be scared of him. Jesus says, I have given you authority. Jesus says, you have my Holy Spirit in me and you need not be afraid, but you need to not be naive. And so where do we go? I believe we move into a position where we are watching and we are aware that we intentionally begin to push back a little bit but that we do that out of a place of authority, not out of a place of fear. And I believe this morning that this idea of agreements is something that every single one of us wrestles with, whether we know it or not. I believe that there are some of you here who have allowed an agreement in your soul to take place that says you don't matter to God. An agreement in your soul because of disappointments, because of things that haven't gone right, in which you say, I don't think God really cares for me. And this morning, I believe God wants to break that agreement off of your heart. Because it's simply untrue. God has given us the tools of his word, the tools of Christian community, to help, to help us understand what's going on, to help break these things off one another. And so maybe that's your challenge this morning. Maybe God is calling you into deeper levels of community to allow yourself to be known so that you can, you can share things with others and allow them to speak into that. Every now and then I'll sit down with a guy and he'll say, man, I just feel like I'm worthless. And I'll just say, man, that's not from the Lord. You have infinite value and worth and Jesus has proved this to you. And so you need people in your life who you're being honest with, you're being honest about how you feel and you're allowing them to speak against it. Because all of us have this propensity to believe lies. And so when we allow someone to speak against those, it's one of the graces of God. And so maybe that's you this morning. Can we just stand together? This morning I want to pray that God would break off the ungodly agreements that you and I have allowed to creep in. That things that we didn't even realize we were taking part of. Lies of no value. Lies of you are not beautiful, that you do not matter. Lies that God doesn't care. Lies that God is not hearing you. These are all lies. And so I believe that God would have those things disappear from your heart and your reality now. Let's bow our heads together. God, as, as we lift our hands, if that's you this morning, if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about agreements in your spirit, I ask maybe, <clears throat> maybe just put your hands out. And you just release those agreements. And you just say, God, I'm not holding on to those anymore. I will no longer let untruths define me.
God, I will allow your scripture and your word, Holy Spirit, your voice to define who I am, to define what is real. And so the agreement in my heart and in my soul that, that I don't matter to you, God, I break that off and I release it to you this morning. God, the, the untruth that I don't matter to others, God, or that hurt caused by others, God, is a reflection on you. I just give that to you and I release that with these open hands this morning. God, I pray that you would help us be aware. Help us be aware, God, that we are, we are fighting for truth at every turn. And God, may we not be scared of the fact that we are opposed, but may we be aware of it. And may we call it out when it happens. May we share it with someone else when we begin to sense it. And in the moments of disappointment, God, would you teach us to cling to what is true rather than allowing things to cling to us. That we would call out the untruths, God. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in our midst. We just say, would you speak? Would you speak to us? Would you speak to those, those deep areas of our hearts that we've buried down low? The place where agreements took place when we were young, when a parent told us we didn't really matter, and we have carried that with us our entire lives, God. Holy Spirit, would you speak into that corner of our hearts? The corners of our hearts, God, that have, that have been deep and long, and we have hidden under smiles, God, and we have hidden under things, God. Would you bring those to the surface? And would you allow the untruths of our enemy, God, to be exposed for what they are. They would be exposed as untruths. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Long for you to speak with us. Jesus, we thank you that you are, you are truth. That you are true. Thank you that you define who we are. That you define our reality. That you define our identity. That you define what happens in our moments of weakness, in our moments of disappointment. Thank you that at every turn your arm is extended to us saying, come to me, my child. In our moments of, of, me, of weakness and mistakes, your hand is extended to us saying, come to me, my child. It's not shame, God, but the tender care of a loving father beckoning his child back to him. We love you. Listen, as the team leads us, would you just give those things back to him this morning? Would you just allow him to reveal the places where, where Satan has informed you wrongly? Give those things back to him. Ask him to fill you with truths. And let's sing together as the team leads us. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.